Hi, friends. Last week, we had some audio issues, which kept us from recording the sermon, uh, and we found that out afterwards. And so I thought I would record the sermon here from my office. And here is a message titled, The Beauty of Holiness. Our gospel reading last week was from Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, and verses 18 through 26. And so here is the gospel according to St. Matthew starting at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the disciples saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Her faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away, the girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. The gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Our gospel reading today gives us three stories within a series of stories told one after the other in rapid succession, directly following Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. There is a great temptation for us always to separate Jesus' teachings from Jesus' actions. This temptation, however, must be avoided at all costs, for God is what God does. And so, when Jesus comes down from the mountain after his sermon, it's not to get on with his life, but to continue on with everything that he is about and has always been about. And so, our gospel reading gives us three stories today. First, The story of Matthew, the tax collector, accepting Jesus' call to follow him. Second, the story of a girl who is either dead or asleep, depending on how you read it, that Jesus raises. And third, the story of a woman who had a medical condition whom Jesus heals. And so we need to look at these stories in their own right and then see what the three of them might have to do with each other and might have to do with us. So let's start with our tax collector. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Okay, so here's what's important to know. The Jews in this time were living under Roman occupation, and so most people saw tax collectors as pawns in Rome's game. 
a game played decidedly against the Jews. And so, as Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine writes, the problem with tax collectors is that they work for Rome and so would be seen by many within the Jewish community as traitors to their own people. New Testament scholar Craig Keener notes that the rabbinic texts of the time contrasted tax collectors and Pharisees, tax collectors being the least pious people around, the Pharisees being the most pious. In some later rabbinic writings, tax collectors were thought to be as impure as lepers, and if they entered your house, your house would be impure as a result. And so, as Robert Farrar Capen puts it, a good tax collector was simply a contradiction in terms, rather like a poverty-stricken dermatologist in our own day and age. And so, Jesus goes up to this guy who was completely canceled and says, Follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. The next thing we're told is that Jesus is having dinner at this guy's house. And word is apparently spread because while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? We'll come back to Jesus' response in a bit, but for now, let's just note that Jesus has broken the norms of what was religiously expected of him. And so, for the first time in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, speak and they ask, how can you eat with people like that? This is an issue of purity for them. These people are like an infectious disease in our society and certainly in our religious community. How can you, claiming to be a religious leader, eat with traitors like them? Story two. Jesus is on the road and a leader from the synagogue comes to him and says this, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hands on her and she will live. Jesus got up, went with him, and so did his disciples. Later, Jesus says the girl is asleep, and people have forever debated whether he meant she was actually asleep or, as was common in that time, was using sleep as a euphemism for death. Regardless, at this point, he is told point blank by this father that the girl is dead and that the father wants Jesus to lay his hands on her dead corpse so that she can be raised. And here's what's often missed. As Keener explains, corpse uncleanness was the most serious uncleanness anyone could contract, rendering a person unclean for seven days. Chris Green explains how important it was within this religious system for priests to avoid the dead. Quote, The priest was bound to remain clear of the dead at all costs. No exceptions were allowed. And then he goes to quote Timothy Radcliffe, who says the high priest was not allowed to mourn even his closest relatives, follow behind their coffins or touch their corpses, lest he be unable to enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And Green concludes, the logic is clear. The holy ones are kept holy by keeping themselves free from the dead. But Jesus makes his way to this home, takes the little girl, presumed to be dead by the community, by the hand, and she is raised up to life.
Story 3. On his way to the house to raise this girl, a woman who had a medical condition causing her to perpetually hemorrhage has an idea. She thinks, if I can touch his clothes, there is enough power there for me to be healed. And it's interesting because the little girl's father thinks, if Jesus can just touch my daughter, she'll be okay. This woman, however, thinks, if I can just touch Jesus' clothes, I'll be okay. Now, this is risky. Here again, within the religious context of the day, she was considered unclean. And if you were to have any contact with this woman, you too would be unclean and would have to exclude yourself from the community for a time until you were considered clean again by going through the correct religious rituals. This woman, of course, was perpetually unclean, which means she was perpetually excluded from society. So she sneaks up to Jesus, trying to be unnoticed, but he turns around, looks at her, and says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. Astounding. Her life is forever changed. But notice here that Jesus doesn't simply let her sneak away, but speaks to her publicly and calls her daughter. He wants to affirm her in front of everyone, restore her to the community, and deliver her from fear. So, three stories. The tax collector, the dead or sleeping girl, the woman with the perpetual illness. What's going on here? How are these stories related? And I think they're related because they all deal with issues of holiness, now, the word holiness, for some of us at least, is a loaded one. So as a Pentecostal, I grew up within the holiness tradition. We were concerned with being people of high moral character, and we referred to this as holiness. And this meant that we didn't do a lot of things. We didn't go to dances. We didn't go to movie theaters. And some of you may find this hard to comprehend, but the first movie that I saw in a theater was when I was in college. And I should mention that the college that I went to prohibited us from going to movie theaters. I should also mention that the title of the first movie I saw was Devil's Own. So today there's a lot of talk about the damage of purity culture and there was a lot of deconstructing with regards to the holiness movement. And much of this is good and much of it is from within the movement itself. I do want to say, however, that there is one thing that the holiness tradition did right, and Chris Green alludes to this, and it's that we took sin seriously. And I think that this is important. In her chapter on sin, in what I believe to be a wonderful book, The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge, she says this, The category of sin has been displaced in our own time by other categories such as disease, maladjustment, neurosis, deficiency, addiction. There was a time in America 50 years ago when the influence of Reinhold Niebuhr made it possible to take sin seriously as a corporate affliction. But the culture has shifted further and faster towards self-regard and self-affirmation than even Niebuhr imagined. It is very difficult to talk about sin today without losing one's audience. But sin is important to talk about. It's important to talk about, not least, because sin is something that harms our relationship with each other, and ironically, in some senses, 
keeps us from understanding what God is actually like. Good, gracious, kind, and the very meaning and essence of love. The problem we are faced with, however, is that we, especially those of us from the holiness tradition, have radically misunderstood what holiness actually is. And so Chris Green is exactly right when he says, we need to tell a different story about holiness and sanctification, a stranger and more beautiful story that moves us to live more faithfully and does justice to the complexities of human being and the mystery of God. There are at least two ways that we have misunderstood holiness, and I'm going to draw a lot from a couple of chapters in Chris Green's book, Sanctifying Interpretation, but I highly recommend that you read this section on holiness in his book for yourself. So first, many of us thought of holiness as separation from the world, and I want to insist that this, in fact, is a desecration of holiness. Separation is, you might have noticed, laced through all three of our stories. First, the Pharisees, who were deeply concerned with purity, would not eat with people that they considered to be sinners. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is a question about separation. Why doesn't your rabbi act holy and separate himself from these people? Bad company corrupts good character, after all. But Jesus enjoyed eating with sinners or people who had the reputation of being sinners. In Matthew 11, Jesus said that his own generation said this of him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was meant to be an insult, but isn't this one of the most beautiful things ever said about Jesus, that he is a friend of sinners? Well, after this, we have the story about Jesus being willing to touch the hand of a corpse, something which would have made him especially ceremonially unclean. But he refused to separate himself from the family who so desperately needed him. And finally, we have a story about a woman who was ceremonially unclean, who touches the edge of Jesus' clothes and is healed. But rather than let this act being done without being noticed, Jesus makes a point of saying publicly what has transpired. Jesus, we note then, refused to separate himself either from sinners or tax collectors or from those who would normally make a person ceremonially unclean. We too then, who follow Jesus, must, if we are to be faithful, refuse this kind of separation from others. Okay, the second way we have misunderstood holiness is to believe that it is primarily the striving for, or shockingly, the accomplishment of a morally pure life. In other words, we seek moral perfection and we call it holiness. But this, friends, is incredibly dangerous. So Chris Green says it like this, We should not aspire merely to live above sin. That aspiration is born of a desire to overcome our need of God and neighbor. And a life so lived cannot bear witness to the beauty of holiness. The desire to live above sin pushes us away from each other and from God. 
The focus becomes ourselves instead of God, ourselves instead of our neighbors. And so the Pharisees who are asking why Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus responds and says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. But do not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, I didn't come to call righteous people like you, but sinners like them. Far from it, as Stanley Howard was, says so well, the Pharisees have no need of this physician because their illness is to believe that they are well. Jesus has come to rescue sinners. They thought that they were above sin, and exactly this is what kept them from Jesus and the wholeness that he wanted to bring them. Martin Luther once warned, Beware of ever desiring such purity that you do not want to seem to yourself to be a sinner, for Christ dwells only in sinners. So if holiness is not separation from the world and its potentially shady characters, and is also not about the attempt to live above sin, which isolates us from people and God, then what is holiness? Green says this, More than anything, we need to think of holiness not in relation to sin primarily, but in relation to Christ. And that means we must reimagine the sanctified life not as a sinless life, but as a life lived for those harmed by sin. Our focus is wrong and harmful to everyone, including our own selves. When we are obsessed with sin, instead of obsessed with being in love with Jesus, who is in love with sinners like us. We cannot forget this. When we are brought into this love, we are brought into it not simply for our own sake, but for the sake of the world which is harmed by sin. Now, perhaps some of you might be thinking, yeah, but didn't Jesus himself say, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect? So what are we to do with this? John Drury says that we have to take this seriously. But to take it serious, according to Drury, we must understand it within the context of the hospitality of God, which is the exactly what we've seen in our text today. And don't forget, God is what God does. We cannot separate this teaching of Jesus from the life of radical hospitality that he lived and demonstrated. And so, understood through the lens of hospitality, Drury says, Holy living is not about my completeness or the completeness of my love, but rather the completeness of the recipient of my love. Or as Green again puts it, love is perfected not in the one loving, but the one loved. The beauty of holiness. So what does this mean for us? There's a temptation for us to believe that we are separate from all of this. After all, we don't have people who are ceremonially unclean that we aren't willing to touch. We don't divide the world up into categories of sinners and righteous like the Pharisees did. But it is precisely here that we need to be reminded of what Jesus said. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, 
where I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. The danger for us is to hear this message and think that it doesn't apply to us but to them. But friends, how many of us are afraid to touch the hand of one of our homeless neighbors who live not only under the bridge next to our church, but often at our very doorsteps? But this is what the beauty of holiness looks like. How many of us think of the person on the other side of the political or theological aisle as unrighteous, but we can't possibly imagine that we ourselves are the sick that Jesus has come to heal? And I think that part of the challenge for us is to look and ask, who are we separating ourselves from? There's a segment of the church right now that believes that we must fight some kind of war against the world. But sisters and brothers, the church never exists to be against the world, but to keep our focus on and follow Jesus to the places in the world that we would rather not go. To be faithful is to be for the world, never against it. And that and not our moral high ground is where the beauty of holiness begins to be displayed. One of the things I was challenged with during the preparation of this message is that the church now seems to think that we either need to double down on talking about sin or that we need to abandon talking about it altogether. But holiness, properly understood, challenges both of these views. When we become obsessed with our own moral perfection, we alienate ourselves from others. We become the kind of people who say, why would you eat with people like that? Or perhaps avoid people or places or situations in order to maintain our pristine appearance of being not like them. And for this reason, Green says something shocking about morality. He says, the call to holiness is a call to break free from morality, which at its heart, is always about power and control. And we must break free from a morality which is about power and control. His point, though, is not that the alternative to morality is immorality, far from it, but that the alternative to morality is holiness, which focuses on Jesus and our neighbors instead of ourselves. But for this exact reason, holiness is right to call us out of our patterns of sin. Why? Because sin is the other side of the same coin as self-righteousness. Both do the same thing. They alienate us from others. Eliezer Fernandez writes this about the nature of sin. Sin is a violation or breaking of the web of life that sustains us and makes us whole. It is the violation of right relation. Yes, sin is also a violation against God, but we discern this violation through our sinful constructions. We discern our violation against God by looking at our own broken relationships. This is one of the reasons that we confess together each week about sinning against God and our neighbor, because sin separates us from one another and from a world that needs to hear about the God who dines with those who sin and calls the self-righteous to recognize that their self-righteousness is keeping them from dining with the God who wants to make them holy and not just moral. And so I invite you to move beyond a life of self-righteousness and beyond a life of sin and to dine with the God who invites sinners like us 
to God's table week after week to make us holy. And never forget, friends, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Jesus was not made unclean by touching those who were unclean, but those who were unclean were made clean when they encountered Jesus. As Brennan Manning would remind people again and again, God loves you as you are, not as you should be, for none of us are as we should be. But it is here at the table of the Lord that we encounter the beauty of holiness that transforms us into the image of the one we focus our gaze upon, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the beauty of holiness. Amen.